I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Sorcerer. So, Casey. Mike. This has got to be the sweatiest movie we've ever covered uh, on this my show. My asshole is still clinched. <laughs> it's, this, is a, this is a clinchy movie. We are, of course, talking about 1977's Sorcerer, directed by William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, The French Connection, To Live and Die in L.A., from a screenplay by Waylon Green, co-writer with different partners on The Wild Bunch, RoboCop 2, and Eraser. Oh, boy. Casey. Yeah. If you had to sum up this movie in like a paragraph or two, what is Sorcerer all about? Okay, so four convicts, four escapees from different parts of the world are hiding in this destitute, unnamed South American uh, country uh, doing odd jobs. They all come together. The town is funded by this pet petroleum company where all the all the labor all the all the labor comes from this petroleum company. Um, terrorists blow up one of the oil wells and there's this gigantic oil fire and so the company needs to hire uh, drivers to try to drive <laughs> nitroglycerin over 200 miles through the jungle to be able to close off this fire. And of course the people that get recruited are these like these like exiles, these criminal exiles that have to work together as a team to try to cross the most inhospitable jungle ever and not blow themselves up. This movie is, is <laughs> fucking intense. I, I just got to say, and uh, to join us to talk about this, this movie is our good friend, returning guest and the camp director and president of camp quest Northwest, Michael Warbington. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Mike, I figured this movie would be right up your alley because uh, the first time I saw it, I know that you were a massive fan of spaghetti westerns. And this movie has a lot in common with spaghetti westerns. It's got these sort of very masculine, like scruffy, sweaty guys pushing themselves to the physical and mental limits, uh, moral ambiguity. So now that you've seen it, <laughs> what do you think of Sorcerer? I, I really enjoyed it. It was an, It's an oddity. It's a movie that... I haven't seen something quite similar to it before. Um, one one element that I thought was really evocative of spaghetti westerns is how they used faces as scenery in a way that Leone yeah. did in a yeah, lot yeah, of his yeah, movies, yeah. where in order to set the scene, you don't have a picture of a landscape. You have a picture of a face, and it's a, it's a face you wouldn't normally see on screen. And it's a face that evokes like the hardship and the, the turmoil that that person has existed in in this small little town or in this, you know, these four different countries where we start these where we start the story and i love that part is that you we have four small movies basically filmed all around the world that are setting up they're basically setting up with very little dialogue in the real places yeah, in, too. The, in those places what there's the first guy is a hitman and he's in is veracruz is mexico veracruz yeah. mexico um the second guy is in paris france no, the second one is Kassem. He's oh, the, the, uh, the, the Palestinian militant yep. in Jerusalem. The third one is uh, Victor Manzon, the the disgraced financier from Paris, Paris. France. Yeah. And then finally, the getaway driver, Roy Scheider, 
who's Jackie oh, Scanlon. Oh, and I like how the four vignettes sort of kind of escalate. You start with a you start with one that's only about a minute long and there's zero dialogue. And then you have one that's about five minutes long and there's only one or two lines and they aren't really plot related. It's just sort of incidental lines. And then the third one is much more complex and dialogue driven. And then the fourth one is more action driven. So you right. have these four very distinct uh, vignettes that introduce the that introduce those who end up being the four main characters of the movie. Yeah, no, I love it that it's like the it, it it's kind of like a dirty dozen thing where it's how are these these people these unlikely people going to come together to solve this impossible task basically to do this impossible task, but they're all like desperate lowlifes. They're yeah. all like these desperate men who. Uh, like if they leave the country, they can't go anywhere near where they came from. Otherwise, they're dead. Well, they can't even really leave the country because they are. I think it's implied that it's Colombia based on the flag, but they are in a country that is very, very politically unstable. There is a dictatorship that seems to have kind of a tenuous grasp on things. There is a lot of anger at the oil company, which is is based there, where the dictator is so tenuous that he's afraid to even retaliate against people that sabotage the oil fields, (laughs) because the people who blow up oil fields are considered patriots and heroes. (laughs) So there's... there's a sense that whatever's happening, it might not last long, and... To get out of of this town, even, because you get the impression these guys are in a remote area. Everything is a dirt road. Uh, There's one airfield that flies in on a dirt path. This plane is beat to hell. By the way, it's called... uh, Oro Negro, black gold. black gold. So even that was brought there by <laughs> the oil company. Mm-hmm. And like the town, um, the name of it is called Porvenir, which I looked up is Spanish, translates to future, which has this kind of false optimism of oh, definitely wow. a town created around an oil company that probably fed a lot of the locals a lot of optimistic sounding things about how they're all going to be rich. You look at this town, those things have not come true. And now the word future means something very different which is you're living in it (laughs) this is the future and this is what tomorrow is going to be like and the next day and the next day and unless you can afford like two thousand pesos worth of bribes you're never leaving well i i think it's funny that the the movie starts with these four vignettes that show how they all ended up in this town and then when we catch up with them they're all like immediately they're all trying to leave yeah, they're yes. all trying to get out of this. Right. Like they've they've come here to escape, but like they've got to find somewhere better to escape to. Well, and they're this is they're all it. more or less gainfully employed, insofar as you can be gainfully employed in this like impossible border town, right? And this 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 non place, this company town in a third world Latin American country where they're apparently paid. Like at one point, I think. Uh, Kasem says something about wanting to get out or he saved a bunch of money and he only had 100 pesos after a year. And I think even at one point, uh, Roy Scheider's character is unloading the plane and he just looks in it and there's all these empty seats. And his friend just goes, yeah, man, if you don't eat for a year, maybe. <laughs> and it's it, There's that sense of, you know, I'm making money, but it will never be enough. There's this mm-hmm. desperation there that your best odd of getting out of the country without making a bunch of money, money that you will never have all at once, is probably just run into the jungle and die. But well, and then and not long after that, he's he's caught by the um, local officials and identified as a you know having falsified his documents. So they so they're not going to arrest him, but they are just going to they're going to take a third of his wages. Yeah, in, so in order to like 
not expose him and not deport him. There's just so much bribery and corrupt. The cops are all, they always show up just a third of your wages. <laughs> and it, there's, he's already living in what looks like a hostel. They call it the workers hotel mm-hmm. where it's just a bunch of like cots and hammocks. And it's it, one of those. It Im- looks like there's disease everywhere. You hear people coughing, you know, it looks like where coronavirus came from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is so fucking bad. I mean, it's just, it's poverty. It's poverty. It's it's the ultimate, you can work your ass off. And people work their ass off for this oil company. We see an accident at the beginning. I think Kassem is one of the people. He's the Palestinian uh, militant guy. He's helping to lift this pipe. All these guys together heaving, and it drops, and it fucking nails this guy. You don't see the bottom half of his body in the water, but it is just a cloud of blood. <laughs> and you just get the impression that these sort of injuries happen a lot there. Yeah, that that did a, that particular scene it did a really good job of like uh, uh, ex- expressing that this guy had gotten a catastrophic injury without sh- having to show any gore. Because just the amount, sheer amount of blood that was immediately in that water was like, he lost something. <laughs> this guy's not surviving. <laughs> He's not going to be the same. But then even when the oil fire happens, oil fire happens at like minute 40, mm-hmm. where you, it's just a fucking explosion. And there's something about... There are a it, lot of great explosions in this movie, by the just, way. There are some yeah. fucking amazing explosions. In the age of CGI, to see a, something that somebody really blew up with a bunch of a, a pyrotechnics is just amazing. Where you're like, holy fuck, that's fire. We, we blew that thing up. And it's like this towering flame. It's like, it's almost like the Washington Monument made out of fire going into the air about as high. And you're just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, another great explosion in the movie happened in the first five minutes at the, in, that, in, the, in the Jerusalem right, scene right. where um, the Palestinian is a, is, a, is a terrorist bomber and they set off a bomb in this like public square area. They really blew that up. And it, it, it looked like people were there getting blown up. It, like, you rarely you see these big explosions, but to see like an, an actor getting hit in the back with it, like at ground zero at this, is pretty intense. This is the thing to say about this movie, and I'm probably going to say this a lot, but I want to say it first here. This movie feels dangerous. <laughs> uh, this yes. movie feels dangerous in a way that like nowadays you don't do this. A lot of it for good reason. You don't do a lot of this stuff because it looks dangerous. It doesn't just feel like at any given time, and it does, that you're going to watch a character die. It feels like you're about to watch an actor die. Yes. And that's the separate. It's like the same yeah. feeling I get while watching the original. You know Mad they're Max. not standing in front of a green screen or they're doing this <laughs> yes. stuff. No. We're just gonna we're gonna blow up part of a building. And apparently that scene, that that explosion that Kasem sets off at that building in Jerusalem, that was such a big explosion that they set off that the mayor of Jerusalem's windows were blown out. <laughs> <laughs> but they but, I mean the fact is that you're actually filming in Jerusalem, you're actually filming in Paris, you're actually and this filming is so, in Mexico. And this is something that Friedkin can do because this is right on the heels of the Exorcist, which was like French huge. connection, then the Exorcist. Yeah, like huge fucking huge. Movies, movies, not not critical hits, uh, box office hits, and of course you'd be like, this does seem like a weird choice because he's basically it's based off of a George Arnaud novel, but it's also there was a there was an adaptation of it called Wages of Fear, a French movie, which is just as good. It really is just as good. It's just a fifties movie of the same idea essentially. Um, but you could tell it would be be like this is this is this is like blank check movie. He's like. He's like, I can do anything I want. And what I want to do is I want to have these guys on the knife's edge of being blown up running through the jungle. Like, 
it, it really incredible, really raw. I it, in a lot of ways, I think of it almost like this inversion of the Fast and the Furious, where the Fast and the Furious, it's big, it's globe trotting. You're actually filming in these cities. You're really in like Rio de Janeiro. You're really in Dubai. But here, we're frequently not in the nicer parts of all of these places. We're in the grimier bits. Uh, this is not like a James Bond esque travel log. It's like it's like poverty tourism. We're gonna fucking go for it. And the only really beautiful, fancy, rich part of this movie is the brief moment that you see with Victor, the disgraced French financier, um, living his best life. And the weird thing is, there is a little class divide, and you see it in this conversation between him and Kassem, who are both driving one of the trucks. At one point. Kassem, the Palestinian, asked him, oh, you're from Paris? And he says, oh, we. Oui. And he tells them about that. And they're talking about their lives. And um, Kassem says that he's been there for two days. And he says, it's really expensive. <laughs> and, and Victor says, like, so I've heard. So, so I've, I've heard. heard. So yeah. I've heard. And you just go, he doesn't feel that. He, I mean, this is a dude who has money with a rich father-in-law. But I kind of love those little moments because it's at one point where these two guys who probably live at this moment very similar lives realize that they come from very different lives. Well, and that they ended up in the same place that, you know, he was would have been a very successful person. Um, the Roy Scheider character, you would imagine, at some time would have been relatively rich from stealing, essentially. But they all end up in the same ditch, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I find so fascinating is, um, we were talking about this before with with John Wick, is that the thing that makes the John Wick series really interesting is not necessarily the stuff that it says, but the stuff that it doesn't say. It It leaves certain things out. It doesn't give you full context. These four men, you actually don't know that much about them. You know more about some than others, but we don't know if Victor Manzon committed a crime or not in France. We assume that maybe he did. We know that he is expected to have a bunch of money. They're accusing him of fraud, of false representation of 15 million I, I mean, francs. I, I think we can infer that he probably stole he it. He did some Donald Trump-esque uh, <laughs> misrepresenting his assets and it's now catching up with him. Because they said, you took the risk, now face the consequences. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, did he gamble with that money? Did he make a really stupid uh, investment that he thought would make back? Um, it kind of feels a little bit like William H. Macy in Fargo. Hmm. I yeah. think they say something to the effect that he, like, falsely false representation of collateral mm -hmm. that didn't actually exist oh, so he took out a loan took out a loan based on some collateral yeah, that doesn't actually exist yeah. so he's they're trying to get the father-in-law to just put down that collateral yeah, his father-in-law so is like the, a baron right so that the investment doesn't <laughs> fall through and he's like no you've this is your problem you deal with it i don't want i don't want to you know, he doesn't. Act, it's not an actual character. It's a you know, a off screen. Off screen. Everyone's calling their dad in this mm. part of the movie. <laughs> but, it's, but it's such a dire strait that the one guy kills himself rather than face the consequences, and he knows immediately that like there's no way out of this. It's either prison or um, you have to escape. And what's so crazy is that when you look at his fate, I don't know how much time passes between him running down the road because he leaves mm. his wife in a restaurant. He says, "I have to, I have to take this call. I have to go mm. sign a piece of paper." And then tells the waiter later, and I got to say, give him some credit. He paid for the meal. You see him hand some <laughs> yeah. money. He, he didn't have to do that before fleeing the country. But he left his wife at a table waiting for him on his 10th anniversary. And he never sees her again. I don't know how much time has passed, how long he's been in in this town, in, in Porvenir. But 
it's enough that he probably let letter that he gives to both the representative of the oil company and then later gets handed to Roy Scheider. It looks like it was written a long time ago. It looks like he's had that in his pocket and has been afraid to mail it for a very long time. Yeah, and it doesn't look like, it didn't look like a letter he had written in, in that morning. It looks like he'd one he'd been carrying around. Because it's, it's like those permanent folds. Like, this has been in a pocket that I've carried around for a really long time. But you also, you you know slightly, you know less about uh, Qasem. We don't, I mean, we have the, the context of, like, Palestinian occupation and things like that. But we don't know who he was, what his group was, what their target was. We don't know really what they blew up. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, you know even less about um, the Mexican hitman, about Nilo, because his is like a minute long with no yeah. dialogue. <laughs> he walks into a room, shoots a dude with a silenced pistol, and then just like disappears into a crowd. <laughs> and you still don't know. And there's so many questions like you don't know why of all these guys, he seems to be the one who's there under his own volition, that he chose to stay in a town. He shows up in town with clean shoes. <laughs> well, it he shows up in town and immediately... Uh, Scheider's character is suspicious of him because um, he's walking into this town, like, you know, dressed nicely and clean. And he's there to, you know, intentionally hit almost like you almost get the feeling like, is he showing up here to track down one of these other guys? Right, right. Is he, is he, uh, you know, is he got a hit out on Scheider or um, the, Victor or, Victor or somebody yeah. else? Because I was thinking about that and he does, he doesn't make the cut to be chosen as one of the four drivers. But one of the other four drivers, who's a good friend of Kasem, who's implied to be an ex-Nazi. <laughs> There's a couple of well, the, characters. Yeah, who the are bartender implied. is definitely an ex-Nazi. He's, an, he's like a Reich Marshal or something. Yeah. And there's a couple. There's a couple inexplicably German men living in a rural <laughs> Latin American town in the 70s. It's like I, I, I definitely smell some goose stepping in this guy's mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. He kills this guy. Said so he kills this guy Marquez, uh, who's a friend of Kasem's, and gets a gets his spot because they have to take somebody to drive these trucks and marquez the same way that kasem's name in this town is martinez and the name that roy scheider's character is juan dominguez (laughs) um, all these fake names are living under and the bribes they would have to get even just to get a passport but he gets a spot on this truck and i just go well why does he even want a spot on this truck and it's like is he just acting to cover his ass because he was there to kill Marquez. Is he there to kill an ex-Nazi? I don't know. They never answer that question. And those little unanswered questions, those are the things I end up liking the most. Like, as they're about to leave in the trucks, the cleaning lady from the cantina comes up and hands something to Victor. Roy Scheider asks him, what is that? And he winks. Yeah. Could and be- I don't know if that's his watch. I don't know if it's anything. I ne- we never find could, out. Could have been a crucifix, you know. Could have been a rosary or something. Yeah. The the bingo hall earnings that get stolen in the heist at the beginning of the movie is happening during a wedding, and the bride oh has my a, god has the a bride, black eye. The bride's got god. a shiner. Oh, oh. yeah, <laughs> that's just disturbing. These are not main characters, but these little no. Bits... It adds so much texture, and the way the camera just zooms right in on it. <laughs> oh. Also, Scheider shows up, and he's got bruises. Oh, yeah. bruises all over his face. Yeah, to he's begin been... with. Too. He's hit something has happened to him because his chin's all purple. Yeah, yeah it's I, yeah, they, it's fantastic because this is this is when storytelling is stripped down to the degree where they don't have to 
put a button on everything. It's things can just these characters are just from they were from a place. We see a tiny slice of time, and then sometime later they all ended up in this shithole. So the characters in that heist, the, they they rob the the bingo winnings or whatever. Did that strike to you strike you guys as like the Blues Brothers evil twins? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're on a mission against guns. <laughs> <laughs> but just the, the, the sheer luck, the bad luck that everyone has in this movie, but the fact that he decides to rob a parish where the priest is the brother of a local mobster. <laughs> I mean, it's and then later when he's talking to his friend who's smuggling him out, he mentions like, hey, I never carry a pistol. And he's like, oh, you can tell him that in person. Because we all know that if there's anybody, mafioso are notoriously reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just all of these little moments like that, I think, are just such wonderful seasoning to this story that it's bare bones. But ultimately, you don't know these four guys that well. And I think what makes that really effective is you don't know as an audience who you can trust. You don't know who any of these guys are, but you also see them as they go through the hell of this movie. Well, you see a camaraderie start to form. You you also, by the time, so the movie kind of exists in... I guess kind of in three sections because you have the sort of the, the vignettes and then those those all feel like they're their own thing. And then you have this where you're sussing out their life and the sort of relationship between the town, the oil company and all of the all of the sort of the political stuff around there. The real hard cut for the rest of the movie is, OK, so there's the explosion at the uh, oil well and there's this giant thing and they need dynamite to close it. But the dynamite has been not been rotated, and so the dynamite's all settled at the bottom of these boxes, and is incredibly volatile. All the nitroglycerin. Any is any hard lurch, any yes. sh- you shake that box, that thing's going up. So they come back. The uh, the 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 stoolie for the oil company comes back, and he's like, "We need drivers who can do this." They're the four that are the ones that are left over. They're the ones that I have the least to lose, right? They, they, well, they also have skills too. Is they all, all four of them actually do seem like they're good at what they do, and they have skills and they have determination. But like, once, they have nothing to lose but their lives. Yes. That's the only thing they can sell at this point is their lives. I mean, there's a great encapsulation of capitalism right there. That you're trapped in a thing, and your one way out is to put the last thing that you own, your body, into a completely dangerous, if not suicide mission to hope that you're not going to be rich at the end of this as you succeed. You'll be less poor enough that you can leave. And it it once it once you hit go on the trucks going out, like there's a great. I think there's a good the montage sequence of them restoring and rebuilding the trucks is awesome. It's oh. like, I love when movies do that well, when they're doing like, oh, we're getting, getting this shit ready, taking, you know, like a dozen completely derelict trucks and cannibalizing them so they can have two working trucks. And I think one of the one of the trucks is the sorcerer, is the titular sorcerer, and the other is Lazaro, which is Lazarus, of course. Um, and these are the two, the only two trucks. Those two like kind of Mad Max looking trucks oh, by the time they're sure up Oh, for sure they are, for sure they are. Just piecemeal but the fact is a lot of movies wouldn't take the time to show these four guys you immediately get to sense that they have skills that these well are- it's you could you could have done the movie at least two different other ways you could have done it the way where you would like you just start the movie in south america and you don't show that backstory and you end up with what's would still be a compelling movie it would, you know be a, a 90 minute movie not a two hour long movie um, or you could do a version of it i think a more modern way to do it at least in terms of like modern tv storytelling is you'd be you would start there but then you would show those scenes in flashback yeah yeah the and, lost sort of and model. i really like the way that they do it here it was with, rather than breaking up 
the later part of the movie. They just kind of get that exposition out of the way. It's just enough of each character to like to to give you a little bit of a background on how they got here, and enough to show you a little bit of what inform something to inform their personality, but still to still leave a lot to mystery, a lot a lot unsaid. So it's it's an interesting structure, but I think it wor- works really well. It gets that out of the way because also I think it really hits you with the oppressive heat and stickiness of this town because you spend four short movies in much nicer places. I was going to say, right. this is a movie about perspiration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sponsored by sweat. Because, yes. Because the, 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 the place they're in is just, they're prote- per- perpetually covered in sweat. There's there's nowhere to bathe. There's no showers. Every, must they must smell terrible. Everyone they're is covered. They're drenched in sweat. <laughs> Everyone is always in the last five minutes of Die Hard as far as their <laughs> as their costumes go. It's just literally dripping off of them. And then the the plot device that like enables the movie is that all of this dynamite has sweat out all of the nitroglycerin. Yes. <laughs> and so it's you you're trans you're, these guys who are covered in tra- sweat transporting sweat. <laughs> <laughs> it's sweat is going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. But the idea that I, I remember this was actually the the science I learned from the TV show Lost because there was also a plot element in the first season finale about a cargo of dynamite that had been left in the jungle unprotected and therefore it's just sweating nitroglycerin and then if like they show like the guy in this movie who's showing them how dangerous it is reaches his hand and comes out with nitroglycerin on it and you see him slowly back out slowly back out of this little hut and then when he's far enough away he throws his hands out and it just throws this little bit of liquid and it goes pop like it's a firecracker <laughs> and it just goes yeah this is fucked they, they go can we take this out by helicopter he says you'd never find a suicide jockey that would do this <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's like you have to find desperate men and i was really thinking about it i think the fact that they picked four foreigners is deliberate because Kasem doesn't slow down for children when he's, <laughs> yeah. when he's doing his driving tryout yeah. and the, the oil company rep calls him a lunatic. Well, are these four guys who, if if they die, there's not going to be anybody protesting. That's it, because we see what happens after the oil fire. I don't know if this is the army or the oil company security. I think there's kind of a blurred line between the two. But they show a, a short scene of the bodies that have been burned and destroyed in this explosion. That scene is disturbing. Yeah, yeah. it really is. That they bring these bodies back to this town and people are weeping and crying and then they said fuck these guys they set the truck from the oil company on fire they're pulling cops down off horses and beating the fuck out of them and i just go they don't want that again if these guys four local guys that they grew up with and have lived in this village since birth if you kill those guys the oil company again in the mountains there's going to be a fucking riot. We're like on knife's edge. But if we kill these four foreigners that nobody gives a fuck about, then we're in the clear. If we win, they're heroes, and the the status quo continues. The oil company doesn't have to leave. But if they die, fuck them. <laughs> and <laughs> and I just, that's what I sort of figured is they picked these guys because these are guys that no one else will give a shit about. We really have to talk about driving scenes. Like I said, the other half of this being the inverted Fast and the Furious (laughs) is that driving almost never goes over 20 miles an hour in this movie. And it feels at any given time like you're going to watch somebody die. And I think the most brilliant thing this movie does is have two trucks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when you have one truck that might explode, you know it's probably going to make it to the end of the movie. When you have two trucks that might explode, (laughs) you are definitely going to see one of those things explode before the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you don't know when. 
at any given time, any bump in the road, there's a part where the mountain roads are so fucking narrow that like Victor is leaning out of the driver's seat, looking down to make sure the tires aren't going off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> yeah. 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 All of the, there are so, there are so many POV shots of what are of a driver looking down at the side of the road and whether it's like a, the crumbling edge of a cliff or whether it's a disintegrating bridge or like, like rocks just sort of falling away. Everything seems like any second, any second, it could, something could happen and they could, they could be gone. And you, that they, they sustain that for, I think like 50 minutes. I think it's about 50 minutes from uh, when they actually go to when at the, the very end. And it's, it's times it's claustrophobic. You're going through the jungle and it's like this tiny little window that you're looking through because there's these leaves that are hitting from all <laughs> sides and your field of vision is so small and it feels like all you have to do is hit a tree stump or a big enough rock in the road and you're fucked. Um, there's bits where they have to go down a hill really quick and I'm just like, <gasps> but probably one of the bits that freaks me out the most is they go across this bridge area. That bridge is the rope. Bridge. We've got to talk about that bridge. Yeah. That bridge, one of the best, best set pieces I've ever seen. It's a, so good. A section of my notes says just under the title, that fucking bridge. <laughs> and I don't know how as a, a feat of movie engineering, they did this. But that bridge has to hold a truck driving across it, but also look like it's so dangerous that I wouldn't walk across it. It, it is it is not like an Indiana Jones ILM thing where they've just made models of the trucks. They built this rope bridge. It's like a rope bridge with... I'm sure with, that it's with, like steel and force. Oh, of course. I'm sure and, it was. And but, like underneath all of that wood surface is... Like, is reinforced metal but the, the setup basically is, is that both trucks and the, the, end up end up having to go over this bridge and it's also happening during like a tsunami like an incredible windstorm and uh one of the guys has to lead has to like sit out in front and be like turn no go here no go here in the middle of the pouring rain almost falling off of this uh, all falling off of this rope bridge all the while the wind and the waves are like making the rocking back and forth and it looks like the trucks are just going to capsize over from this movie they, they they tip over like impossibly far <laughs> yes. like 45 degree angle yeah. yes. and this bridge is swaying and it's like you move a little bit you're like gotta hold still gotta hold still till it's, it's somewhat flat again and the one guy goes ahead and is having to scream in this monsoon to the other guy who has to drive and every time the wheel goes over anything a piece of this bridge goes away <laughs> yeah it's like it cracks it pops, it groans, and then you see a guy go over the bridge again. Another <laughs> one truck. car barely makes one truck barely makes it across the bridge. You think the other truck's gonna have to find another way around. It's like, nope, we're doing it. And it's and what an, another thing that that you, you'll notice is over the course of the scenes and is that like the water level keeps getting higher and higher to the point where at the like when the very end and it might also be the bridge getting more and more worn and collapsed, but by the very end of it, they're practically just just barely over the surface of the water. It, I don't know, it just adds a, a, le a level of peril to it. Oh, there's just these little bits that are just fucking amazing. The second the second team to go over the bridge are Victor and Kasem. And there's this bit where Kasem is walking ahead and guiding, them, guiding Victor to drive across this bridge. 
And then Kassem steps on the wrong rotted log <laughs> and just plunges. It's like this immediate fall into the river thing and catches. And the sound just drops out. And the screen goes black and it's fucking terrifying. It's just like, holy shit, this must be what it feels like to die. <laughs> it's just like you think he's just dead. Uh, but then he has to pull himself out. And Victor is still pulling forward because he has no visibility. And you think he's about to run over Kassem. <laughs> and it's just little things like oh, that. Oh, because when he cry- crawls back out of the hole, he's within like... Like the blind spot in front of the bumper. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my fucking god! And the ropes are starting to fray, and it feels oh, like, like the cutaway shots to the ropes untwisting, <laughs> and like oh. the, the sound design of like the ropes constantly kind of snap, snap, snapping. I don't think we can. No matter what we say, I don't think we can fully illustrate how fucking dangerous this scene feels. How it just feels like you made it across this bridge once. This set piece has to be the moment that second truck blows. It has to be. There's no way you would let them do this twice. And they barely make it. And it's a hard cut for the point that they're just at the edge of the bridge, just as this thing collapses and it hard cuts away. And you don't know for like five minutes if these guys survived or not. It is so fucking masterfully done. And I actually thought of something because I watched this. This is the third, to- second and third time I watched this movie is for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning, there's a part where they're driving down these narrow mountain roads. And there's this bit where there just isn't a natural cliff for the road to continue. So there's this made out of wood, kind of rotten old sort of curve Mm -hmm. that's made into it. And it's falling apart. Like everything's falling apart in this movie. The guys in the movie are falling apart. And there's this brief fight between Victor and Kasem about who's going to stand out in front, who's going to drive the truck. And they have kind of a stare down and Victor wins. Kasem gets in the truck and then the tire goes into a rotted, uh, gets wedged into this rotted piece of wood and stuck. And you just feel this moment where the the dynamite boxes lurch a little bit forward. (laughs) And Kasem, the actor who played him, has this beautiful moment where he looks like I'm about to die. And when he does it, he's just frozen. He looks so fucking traumatized in this moment. And then Victor's yelling at him to go forward. Yeah, hit the gas, hit the gas. He's like, no! (laughs) And then finally stops himself. He's like, okay, okay, okay. And finally wedges it out, and it's so fucking nerve-wracking because you think when you step on the gas like that and that tire comes unwedged, they're going to zoom forward, and you think that's when they blow up, but mm-hmm. they don't. And I realized because Kasem had to drive in that moment, that means when it's Victor's turn to drive, Victor gets the bridge. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I I made that connection too. And it's like, uh, <laughs> fuck you, man. It's your turn. you you get to die in the river now. Well, but I oh. love, I love the way they follow There's a lots of like holding your breath and like how they're going to get through these. And then they sort of end up, they sort of end up getting to a point where they're, they're not, they're in the jungle proper. And then the ultimate obstacle happens. The only road they can go down, there's a giant tree falling across. and it's like, like, a, like Redwood Big. Right. And then everyone's losing their shit. Everyone's just like, we can't can't go anywhere. Nilo no. the Assassin has my favorite reaction to this moment, because this is right after the bridge. This is less than two minutes after they both cross the bridge. And it's like, you'd think, after going through this, that we fucking earned the money. Mm-hmm. And then it's something this fucking stupid and stop the absurdity of it and nilo just starts fucking cackling (laughs) he's falling over on the ground laughing and and then roy scheider just loses his shit and starts punching the mud 
And then later you see him cradling his arm because he looks like he just hurt himself. <laughs> well, he's waving a machete around in a swamp, like at branches all around him. And like at any moment, I feel like he's going to cut his own hand off because it's just he's waving it so wildly. That that made me nervous. That made me even more nervous than the bridge is watching him wave the knife around. Is like... He just looks like this is the last semblance of his sanity falling away. That there is that's that's what I love, and this is why it's really handy when the second truck shows up that we've got a, one guy out of these four that knows how to plant an explosive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of they MacGyver the shit. Just like I love these little moments in movies like this where you have a problem and you have to all build a machine together to solve the problem. We saw it with the trucks. And now we see them build an explosive device using a one of their boxes of dynamite to take this tree out, and it is amazing. I love watching people systematically. They don't tell you what they're going to build or what the plan is, but you see them build it and it sort of comes together in your head. Yeah, yeah it's this thing of the, if you were doing it in the modern movie, there would be a voiceover by a character going like, you know, okay, well, we're going to set the, t- the nitroglycerin here and this is going to be suspended from this. And when this, you know, like this movie does not feel the need that they have to hand hold, handhold anything. It's so confident in the way that it's going to show you what's going to happen. You don't need any dialogue. All, all you hear is, Kassam say, I can do this. When Kassam first sees the tree, that actor has this wonderful look on his face where it looks like his soul is leaving his body. <laughs> it looks like, oh, these four guys just went through that fucking bridge. It's like, we've earned this. It is so fucking unfair. Of course it ends this way. Mm-hmm. But man, that tree explosion is so fucking satisfying when it happens. Yeah. But watching these guys run away and they're so beat to shit that they can't run without falling or falling in mud or <laughs> tripping. And it's just those little moments because the movie just feels exhausting. It it the, it very much reminded me of have either of you seen Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo? Mm-mm. Do you you know what the movie is about? So the movie is about a real person who was Kind of obviously a crazy person, just like Werner Herzog is. Um, and Fitzcarraldo is played by um, Klaus Kinski, of course, because you got to you got to flow. If you want to have a crazy man, you hire Klaus Kinski. And he's got this idea of, oh, um, there are these two rivers in Brazil. And um, if you can find a way to get the, like the rubber trees are here and the, the sort of the, the part of the river that is... Um, connected to the ports is here if you could pull a boat over a mountain and go to the other side you could like and you know you could you could control the wealth in this area if you could and so it's about a guy's crazy idea about how to try to pull a boat over a mountain basically and it's the same thing it's exactly the same thing this which is setting it up to do it in a movie is just as crazy as the characters in the movie trying to do it right how to how to properly get a fucking truck on a rope bridge is just as insane as the people who in the movie are trying to drive a truck across a rope bridge. It's such such an insane feat to want to try to do it. And he, the execution is crazy. It's, it's weird because you hear all the stories about the making of Apocalypse Now, and I can't imagine that this movie has stories that are any less insane about the descent into madness and the physical ordeals. I mean, this is like DiCaprio and the Revenant level of <laughs> physical fuck upness where these guys are just so fucking broken at the end that, that in the end, it, it really is just Scheider is the last survivor. And the thing is, the death of Victor and Kassem is one of my favorite little moments in the movie. And it's this moment that I think typifies the bleakness of this movie. 
Because the thing that kills you in Sorcerer is not the dynamite in the back of the truck. It's it's not necessarily the big set pieces like the bridge or the tree. It's these little human moments where you allow yourself to be vulnerable with another human being for just a small period of time. And you have a little bit of connection that Victor and Katsem are talking about their lives, that this is the first time they felt relaxed enough after all of this to just talk with each other. And they're talking about Victor's life in Paris and the last time he saw his wife. And he just has this little distraction and it's enough for them to hit something in the road. The tire pops, they careen off the road and explode. <laughs> just like that. It's over like that. And it's just this little stupid moment. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, what is the thing that ultimately gills Roy Scheider's character killed? Is that he's in a bar and he's fucking traumatized. I mean, this pushed him to his physical and mental limit. He's got this thousand yard stare while they're writing him a check for 40,000 pesos. He can't cash it, but don't worry. By this evening, we'll be in a bank and we'll cash it for you. You're good. And he's just sitting there and he can't even enjoy the fact that he basically gets everyone's money as the last survivor. And there's this song that comes on over the radio in this cantina and you can see it slowly pull him back and the sort of humanity slowly goes into his eyes and he decides to just have a dance with the cleaning lady there just this little quiet human connection moment he just wants to have a little moment of vulnerability and if he had just left instead of delaying everything so he could have this little moment of vulnerability Mm -hmm. those gangsters from new jersey wouldn't have caught up with him if he just you let your guard down just a little bit to just be a human for just a little moment and it gets you fucking killed. I, I love that ending. Yeah. It's ending definitely was... a fuck you seventies ending, yeah. but it's a great ending. Yeah. You notice the two guys that get out of the car. I only noticed it this last time I watched Well, one it. of them was the guy who uh, gave Roy Scheider the directions to get out of town. Yeah. yeah. So the, the guy who the guy pretended to be his friend. I don't remember if the, uh, the other guy was just another hitman for the mafioso. Yeah. yeah. He's in the scene where he's talking to the mob boss about finding this guy. It's one of them, and it's the guy who, who helped him get down there. It was the guy that helped him that I recognized the first time through. Yeah. And made the connection. Oh, okay. So he some they don't explain it. They don't, they don't, don't say to. why. They don't need to. It's, yeah. Somehow this guy turned on him either, you know, for his own advantage or, you know, because he was forced to. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to give that guy, like, a black eye or look like he'd been beaten, but they didn't. Right. <laughs> right. So you're left with a question. So the the bit, at, so after uh, Victor and Kasem have exploded, it's it's up to uh, Roy Scheider and Nilo, and they get stopped by revolutionaries, armed revolutionaries. They're basically just like, we're taking your shit. And because Nilo's a hitman... He he pulls out his revolver and he basically like he headshots like, like four of them, three or four of them, right? Yeah. Before he gets shot, which is pretty good marksmanship. He kills shoots one guy in the fucking eye. <laughs> but it's it's weird because he he delays getting out of the truck and pretends to cough like he's sick, and they're mm. just like the the bandit dudes just like what do I shoot him in the truck or what? They're like confused because this guy they're used to people just getting out of the truck when you pull a gun on him, but they doesn't getting out. And I think it's a delay tactic to get his gun. And mm. then Roy Scheider has to kill the last one with a fucking shovel. <laughs> that was a great effect. Pre- pretty raw. Pretty yeah. fucking raw. Oh my God. It is so, it's so uncomfortable because again, what is the thing that almost gets him killed? It's just a quiet moment of them looking at the explosion ahead. Mm-hmm. They let their guard down. You let your guard down. You're not, you're not constantly on guard. If you give yourself a chance to be a human, 
you're, you're just fucking dead. And even just the last bits where, you know, Nilo is dead. He's dead in the truck. And Scheider is like hallucinating and having flashbacks while driving the truck through the last desert area that looks like he's on Mars. Yeah, it's like it almost feels like a like a geolo- geological graveyard. Like it's got all these weird formations that, you know, are from previous eras. And it of course, it becomes Nilo's graveyard. And it, you kind of think that it's going to be Roy Scheider's graveyard because the truck stalls out and he can't start it again. And he's just like. I'm fucking dead. <laughs> and he's two miles. Like he yeah. wrote in chalk on the, the dashboard, 218 miles. And he looks at the odometer and it's 216.7. Mm-hmm. So he has to carry this thing. Imagine, you know, remember when you do elementary school, you had field day where they made you do that race where you're carrying that egg on a spoon. <laughs> 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 but imagine doing that with dynamite and much higher stakes. <laughs> I just imagine he's staggering yeah. when so, he finally. So that sh- that shot is fucking amazing. There's a tr- there's a it cuts and it's basically fully nighttime, and it's tracking back. But you can see Roy Scheider like swaying and barely able to hold uh, the case of TNT. Um, and he's sort of like you're like oh he's gonna drop it any minute. This is he's fucked. And it pulls back. Um, and then the the what's illuminating him is actually the gas fire from the from the thing, and it's that is a that's a spooky image. It's probably the spookiest image in this whole thing. Um, and then you see like guards finally come and then like take it from him, and he just collapses on the ground. Just, but that well, fucking I love shot. that he, he like keeps wandering right. towards the fire until he collapses. Right. He goes another ten yards before he collapses. Just face plants. That, that shot is so incredible though, the, of just him mm-hmm. just stammering, almost falling in silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, so that towering flame. It's just lighting that area. Oh, it's so fucking good. So one thing, backing up just a little, one thing that I thought was interesting is that um, when the truck breaks down breaks down, and Scheider takes a moment to take Nilo out of the truck and like sit, prop him up rather than just leaving him in the, in the footwell of the truck. Yeah, he gives him that humanity. He gives him like either because he knows the truck is about, likely about to explode as he tries to get the dynamite out of it, so he's moving him a little bit away from that, or it's not quite explained why. He doesn't doesn't take the time to bury him or anything. It's just he moves him, Yeah, I thought was interesting. Well, the, the, in, in the, it's, it's interesting because their relationship has changed because at the beginning, like, he tries to, oh, uh, no, the Kassam tries to kill him with a knife. That knife, uh, that click of that yeah. knife is like the loudest thing in the but, movie. But Nilo has, like, fired fired bullets at Roy Scheider's character before. And so they've known before this, they've known to be like, well, you're not my friend at all. And you know, I might be killing you. So I get your share by the end of this. He basically tells him at the beginning, he says, I've been watching you since you came into town. You even blow your nose without permission in this truck. And I'm driving this thing into a ditch. (laughs) And yeah, you don't know because of, of of the four guys, it really feels like Nilo is there by choice. And you never find out why. You don't never find out why specifically he was in that town or why he wanted to be on this truck so badly. Because if he wants to die, there are a lot of options. He doesn't have to die in the jungle with an exploding truck. Those little unanswered questions are the bit that I think makes this movie so compelling. Like, you never know. You never know what happens. You never know for sure. That letter's probably never going to get delivered. Right. And you have the unanswered question to Victor's wife about whatever happened to him and where he died. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Tangerine Dream score. So if you're a film fan, uh, you know that there was a 70s and 80s, right? We're probably, and lots of Friedkin movies had had Tangerine Dream scores. At least two I know of. Um, and it's like, 
Are, are they like they're are they British? Do you know if they're British or are they English? I, I don't know. I think they might be British, but I think they're like the they're they're like an alternate version of Goblin. You know, the Italian very synthy, yeah. synthy, and and it's it's about more about mood setting than it is about having any sort of themes or elite motif in it. And it definitely feels weird because this sounds like a. a like an 80s soundtrack yeah but it's a 70s soundtrack so it's all analog synthesizers and some of it is really fucking haunting the the synthy music that they play the theme that plays under the oil fire is so haunting yeah Mm -hmm. sounds like a ghost yeah it sounds like something out of blade runner right Um, yeah it's uh it's yeah you're right it's weirdly futuristic in a kind of a way that is a counterpoint to the real destitution of the of the imagery in the movie and it's pretty sparse like the you there is a lot of score that you don't that's not trying to get noticed that you're because it's playing underneath the sound effects of the rumbling truck and shit um but there are very few times when you actually there is a swell of music um to try to put a mood on something so it feels like just like the distances between where these characters are going the distances between when you're actually hearing the music is very far apart score like it's it's part of the score but it's 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 sound, but it's not necessarily music. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross. I can see that. I can um, see that. So there's a lot of people that have talked about the impact that the movie Star Wars has had on cinema, but I will say the first casualty of Star Wars was Sorcerer, because this movie, through sure bad luck, and maybe that's the perfect fate for this movie with its themes, <laughs> but. It had the bad luck of being released into theaters one month in 1977. One week after. Yeah, after Star Wars. That all of the contractual obligations that different theaters had to put screens of Sorcerer up, suddenly they really wanted to get out of them because they wanted more Star Wars. I mean, I don't think we can in... We understand how big Star Wars is as a cultural juggernaut now, but I don't think we understand what it is like to live in the world that that hard line between pre and post Star Wars, the KT boundary of movies, where suddenly there's a movie that is making money like nothing else. And if you were a tiny one screen theater in a small town and you can only afford to have one movie in, you really don't want to take Star Wars off your screen. Nobody hates money that much. You you don't and, and you're right, Star Wars was the it, it changed it changed it. But I'm I kind of think about Jaws, which was two years before, which is obviously Roy Scheider's biggest movie out of everything that he had done um that was the first true blockbuster right that was the first one where it was like oh oh, people are going to be people are going to be coming to this and it's so fascinating that uh that roy scheider does this he does this and then he does jaws 2 i think the same year or at least comes out in the same year but it's so fat like choices the the choices of friedkin does this after he does exorcist roy scheider does this after he does jaws like in like a crazy choice and it sucks how much it got buried it's crazy because even star wars is a hail mary that even george lucas thought was going to flop i think that when star wars came out i remember reading a story once that he and steven spielberg went on vacation together in hawaii and turned off their phones turn you know we're going to be in a hotel we're just going to enjoy the beach we're not going to look at newspapers it's movie's going to open and maybe we're both fucking ruined, but let's enjoy a nice time together. Cause I think I forget what the 1977 movie that uh, Spielberg was releasing at about a similar time, but they were probably both, Sugarland express. They were both thinking like, fuck, you know, maybe this is it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes the biggest thing ever. But that fate that they were afraid of 
kind of happens to William Friedkin <laughs> because this is a guy who had all the wind at his back with the French connection and the exorcist. And this movie goes hard, man. It takes a huge swing. It's expensive as shit and you can feel it on the screen. And it just has the bad luck. It's again, this is Roy Scheider getting off, getting, you know, taking one last moment to have a dance with a woman in a cantina where if he had just left, he would have missed the gangsters. If Sorcerer had come out in theaters a year earlier, I think it would, it wouldn't have gone down the memory hole for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people that are rediscovering it now and reevaluating it now. Well, I think it became so expensive that, and this is just from piecing together stuff on Wikipedia, but I think it became so expensive that it needed to involve another studio to help finance it. Oh, yeah, then, it's a Universal and a Paramount picture together. And then I think there was some rights issues where it wasn't either wasn't clear or neither studio would sign off on a release on it or something. So Friedkin finally had to buy back the rights to it like 10 years ago to get it oh, actually wow. re, like restored and re-released. And it's not even like a beautiful restoration. It's the, the version I saw was you know still pretty grainy and gritty which is maybe how it was originally you know intended but it, it doesn't have the same pristine restoration that something like godfather has had from that same sure, era sure right? um i think inadvertently if it is inadvertently it kind of adds to the feel yeah it certainly works it doesn't detract from the movie at all it just it feels anchored to that time but i think that there's probably a period of like 35 years where nobody watched this movie or it was like really like i'd I didn't have a cult following. I'd never heard of it until you'd mentioned it. I'm curious when you when you saw it for the first time and and what how how you were made aware of it. Actually, I've got a question that, and it kind of comes full circle, is that um, I found out about this movie because of Star Wars, because Star Wars in the second season of The Mandalorian did a tribute yeah, episode. They, they totally did to this. There's an episode where the Mando oh, you're right. is driving through the fucking jungle with an Imperial truck that might explode at any minute. You're right. And it's, I hadn't made that connection. It's the weirdest thing that they killed a thing and now they're doing a tribute to it. It's a lot like <laughs> Netflix making a show about blockbuster, <laughs> but that's how I first found out about people were talking about the wages of fear and sorcerer. Okay. And I went, that's kind of a cool idea. And I looked it up and I, okay. I got it as I rented the disc from Netflix. Cause yeah. I still do that. And this movie was so fucking great. And I'm like, how have I never even heard about this movie? I think maybe I've seen it as a VHS box before, but you know, I just wasn't drawn towards a movie with Roy Scheider in the jungle. that has a sort of a dad movie feel to it. Well, and but, such, it's also titled strangely. Yeah. Like, you think title, it's a horror movie? The title or doesn't something? give anything away about yeah. the movie at all. And yeah. if you're a guy who made The Exorcist, you might think it's about an actual sorcerer. But it's kind of, it's like weird because the movie is confusing in terms of its title. And you know it's the name of a truck, but it could have been called Lazaro. And it would have been. Well, and it's, and it's not even the truck that ends up. It's not even the hero truck between no. the two of them. No, yeah, it's, it's the, the other one. It's the one that explodes blows up. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think I, I've read I've read that like Friedkin considers it his best work. It's a, I'd be which, fucking proud of this movie. Yeah, so which I, I keep like I'm imagine him like having made all like, twenty different movies, and like the th one that you think is your best is the one that like nobody's ever seen. Yeah, the one that looks like it was hard to make. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing about this movie that feels like it would have been non-exhausting. 
every part of this feels like you are going to be just as muddy, just as sweaty, just as caked in mud as these heroes are. And you're going to be just as fucking traumatized as Roy Scheider staring at the wall, uh, having a check written for him, except William Friedkin never gets his check. He it's, never gets that big moment because this movie ended up being a massive commercial flop. I, I feel like in, the, I, I, in my mind, I have I had put this movie in the same position as like Chimino's Heaven's Gate, you know, where it's a super celebrated director who's getting the blank check and who does this movie that like is super fucking expensive and then goes nowhere. But when you watch Sorcerer, you're like, well, no, this isn't, you know, the 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 sort of the reevaluations. Have either of you seen Heaven's Gate? No. Um, the reevaluations lately have been like, like what a towering, what a big swing, like what a towering uh, challenge it would have been to try to make a movie of this scale. And it doesn't work on for lots of reasons, but it's pretty Im- fucking impressive. And this is the sort of same thing where it's like this, the attempt, the swing for Sorcerer is fucking awesome but since no one's seeing it no one really has has watched it or a small only cinephiles like have watched it they don't realize how fucking good it is how successfully it does what it, it set out to do yeah so i guess that gets us to our big question at the end and maybe we've already answered it but is sorcerer worth your time yeah i think it definitely is i you had recommended it to me based on um some some, some similarities to other genres that i enjoy and i I see some of the similarities, but ultimately it's a movie that doesn't fit cleanly into a genre box. No. Um, and so it's it doesn't get added to like the top 10 Westerns or the top 10 chase movies or, or the top 10 sci-fi movies where uh, where it otherwise might be on lists like that. It's sort of a sort of comes you know sort of a thriller. Um, I, I guess that but, but it's such a so divorced from any like particular genre that it's hard to categorize it but it's i i really enjoyed it i i watched it twice in order to prepare for this and enjoyed it both times it's such an intense physical experience at watching it i think i was watching it with my wife and after the first 40 minutes or so i think she was feeling like oh this is a little boring like you're not quite sure where it's going and she left of course so she didn't get to see the trucks part of it so she really yeah this is definitely a movie you need to see all of it yeah for sure to get it to to get understand why that sort of that sort of second act of the movie is so important of establishing but like the fucking experience of of watching and yeah every so often you forget like they do. Every so often you forget like they do. Oh, right. This could explode at any minute now. And then something jolts you back into it and you're just like, oh, fuck, it's going to happen. It's incredible. It, it's it's a it's a way of keeping you on the edge of your seat that's actually not as painful as something like a Uncut Gems where you are afraid because the main characters are making poor decisions and those are snowballing. You are rooting for the main characters because they know at any point in time the 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 ultimate failure is going to end up happening and so in the same way you feel like nervous and tense but you also it's also extremely satisfying when they sort of surmount those obstacles too it's just a great cinema experience i'd love to see it in a theater i would love to see this in this movie is fucking incredible i really do think this is a lost masterpiece um of the highest order um to have a globe-trotting movie that isn't a picturesque travelogue to something that's much grittier and grimmer um 
morally gray. My God, the performances are amazing. There's these moments with all four characters where you look at their sanity cracking on their faces. These moments where they think, this is it, I'm about to die. Moments where they just have this release. Nilo just cackling at that tree. Um, And little organic bits that I think a lot of movies sometimes forget to do. Like there's a bit where Scheider is driving down this dirt road and this indigenous dude is walking on the side of the road and kind of notice and decides to start fucking with him. Like he starts like slowly cartoonishly jogging in front of, in front of the truck and making him slow down. And then he like runs around the back and he's like on the back of peekaboo on the left, peekaboo on the right. And you can just, and they, the guy has no idea that this thing is a moving bomb. And then if he forces them to step on the brakes, he might kill everybody. But it's just like, yeah, of course, if you live in a place like this, you might start fucking with somebody. Yeah. But it's like a lot of movies, the bride with the black eye, you forget these little bits that, movies would be easily forgiven you wouldn't notice they weren't there but they just give us richness to it and this movie so much of it my heart is in my throat yeah i feel so deeply uncomfortable in the most satisfying way of seeing tires barely hanging onto roads (laughs) the popping and cracking and groaning of wooden things that they are probably driving across well one of the most like unsettling things in the a couple of the most unsettling things in the movie to me were like at, at in the bar at like in the small town the bartender at one point gets out like a little bottle of insecticide and just starts like spraying it on the bar <laughs> yeah and then in the in the next scene he's serving a guy something to eat and like just takes the silverware or the flatware and wipes wi- wipes it <laughs> yes. on his sweaty shirt yeah before handing it to him like somehow that that's all the cl- that's the only cleaning of these silver that, that it's gotten since the last person who used it. Just those organic bits. It just it's so so amazing. This movie just feels alive and feels dangerous. This movie feels dangerous to watch. I've never had the maybe the original Mad Max, but I've never had the kind of vicariously hard in my throat fear for what's about to happen on screen like this in a very long time. And it's, it's fucking incredible. So, Michael Warbington, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Camp Director and President of Camp Quest Northwest. Mike, if people want to find out more about you and Camp Quest, where can they go? Go to campquestnorthwest.org. We are currently taking registrations for campers and counselors for both summer camp sessions, one week in July, one week in August. Um, we're working on our planning for those right now, and they're shaping up to be really great. Nice. Yes. Not a lot of jungle driving courses. <laughs> no, the, the theme this year is is rainbow. So. Okay. <laughs> so we're totally opposite. Tide, decidedly different, yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. Everyone go check out Camp Quest. Uh, and thank you to our episode sponsors. A very special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Nidecker, Zuri Russell, Steel Wolf, Sterling Taylor, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Matt Weber, Kaylin, Jeff Nathan, and Christopher Allen McDowell Horn. Nice. Thank you guys so much for joining us on that. Thank being, you. Supporting our show. Um, if you want to become an episode sponsor and join that illustrious list, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or click the big red button. No, actually, it's green. Green. I, 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 you think I would know green. <laughs> I've seen a movie that was like 50% green. Uh, pick the green, green button on radio versus the Martians.com. Other than that, folks, we will catch you next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. 
This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Five minutes before nine in Paris.